Welcome to uh, the next Breakfast with Jesus talk. I'm sorry there's been a bit of a break since the last one. Um, Anne and I have been away on holidays and other things have happened in our family, but we're on, on the train again. And this one is one I've been looking forward to uh, for a long time. It's really important. It's on Jeremiah's famous declaration of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. And I call this the covenant without conditions. And that's very, very important. In Jeremiah 31, uh, Jeremiah declares this very, very famous passage, which is also quoted completely um, in Hebrews chapter 8. It's actually the longest quotation from the Old Testament in the New Testament. I'm not going to talk about the way Hebrews handles this passage in this particular talk, but I will probably give another talk in a few days doing just that. Uh, the book of Hebrews is much neglected, but very important. So anyway, here's what Jeremiah said. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant. Now that's really important. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So this is the Mosaic covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbour and his brother saying, uh, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is a wonderful passage, uh, very, very significant and seen as so clearly by uh, the apostles who pretty obviously saw this was a promise, not just to the ethnic house of Israel, but certainly to the church uh, and I would say to all humanity. Now, the problem I want to address um, in this talk is a, a mindset which I call performance-based Christianity, and it's pervasive. Uh, it's pervasive, uh, and I think it's corrosive. I think uh, it, its level of corrosion um, is hard to estimate, but the pathway is uh, pretty pretty clear. Uh, you get um, the flavour of it in many sermons, and it tends to go along the line of uh, behavioural demands, behavioural conditions for the blessing of God. And this leads to effort, um, and I think it leads to then, um, ironically, um, very strongly, one of the points that I have observed, as well as I believe is in both psychology and the scripture, it leads to despair. Uh, 
it doesn't work, um, doesn't create a performance-based thinking actually seems to backfire, make things worse. And that can lead to uh, terrible results, um, terrible results in terms of people throwing their faith away or people losing heart or becoming complacent. Pharisees. I'm going to argue that the reason this is pervasive is it is the natural mindset. We've argued this long in gospel conversations and my friend Mark Strom and I have beat this drum for a long time. Um, but the, the critical thing is that the shift to a grace-based Christianity is a paradigm shift. And I think because it is a paradigm shift, a lot of us get it just superficially. In other words, we get the first layer and we get the words, but then there is not a real transformation of the undercurrent of our worldview and of our assumptions about life. It doesn't penetrate down deep enough and this natural mindset reasserts itself. And what I hear in a lot of sermons is a torturous, tangled mix of probably a superficial declaration of grace because we go to an evangelical church that very quickly slips into performance. Um, I believe in going back to first principles and arguing from an ideal um, clearing of the decks, which is what this uh, talk will be about and what Jeremiah offers us. So the first thing I want to say is that I want to explore the normal mindset of this word covenant. Um, and the normal mindset of covenant is what uh, Douglas Campbell and others call contractual. Um, I, and, and that means conditional. Um, and, and I'm arguing this is, for the human mind, pretty well the only kind of legal infrastructural relationship we can conceive of. It is an if-then logic. Um, if are the conditions and then are the consequences. And that's how legislation works. All law works that way, as do all contracts. I'm not a lawyer. But in my consulting career early on, I was the principal advisor to the Australian Tax Office when they were trying to uh, rewrite the Tax Act in plain English. And I worked with uh, the top lawyers in Canberra, a wonderful friend called Tom Reid, who was part of what's called the um, Office of Parliamentary Council. And Tom and I worked, he was the lawyer, I was the language person, and we worked together to try and create a new paradigm of law, a new paradigm of law, making things simpler. Because what had happened is that uh, the Income Tax Act had grown um, exponentially in, in size and complexity and no one could keep up with it. So I, I'm very familiar with the grammar of law, having written this uh, ex exemplar piece of legislation, we wrote an exemplar piece of legislation that taught me a lot about contractual legislative thinking. I mean, I had to, I had to create the grammar and it was an if-then grammar. Um, importantly, uh, what we also learned was the importance of purpose, which tended to be missing from most legislation. I'll come back to that later. 
So that that's how contracts work. That's how legislation works. There's a question underneath this is, but is that how relationships work? I think a lot of us import contractual conditional thinking into relationships. You know, if you do this, I'll do this. We don't say it, but the con if, if, if what I'm saying is right, the contractual thinking is impossible to shake. And I think bringing it into marriages is a very good example of what I'm talking about. Um, the second question underneath this is, well, does that contractual framework actually produce the outcomes it wants to? I mean, every contract, every contract is there to create some state, some situation, some generally good state or situation. And the question is, does it? In the case, by the way, that we're talking about of the Tax Act, uh, the answer was no. Um, the complexity, uh, the very attempt at precision of this contractual world was creating a quagmire, confusion, and it was certainly just in general terms leading to um, an over-legalistic society that was confused. That's why they're trying to reform it. Now, that's exactly how the old covenant did work. The Mosaic Covenant undeniably was an if-then covenant. I don't argue with that, and I don't think any of us would argue with that. Um, my, my big point is this, that the religious mindset, the evangelical mindset, and probably the modern Catholic mindset, so let's just call it the evangelical religious mindset, assumes the new covenant keeps that if-then framework. And I'm going to argue it does not. And that's the critical thing you need to grasp. So let's begin by just looking at the framework of this, or the grammar of the old covenant, which was the Mosaic covenant given at Sinai, to which Jeremiah alludes. Um, I would say it's a double if-then, a double if-then grammar. And the if and the then are, are just um, tightly binding to each other. Uh, like Siamese twins, you you can't have one without the other. So the first level is, if you obey me, I'll bless you. That's the first if then. If you obey me, keep my commandments, I will bless you. And that had been declared uh, by Moses, and we know that Israel had repeatedly broken that. So And Jeremiah alludes a lot to that situation. But then there's a second level, a second if then on top of that, which is, but if you repent after you've not obeyed me, I will forgive you. So I think there's two levels of if then. It's worthwhile pulling them apart because we see them both um, throughout the Old Testament, but certainly in Jeremiah. So let me just demonstrate how endemic this if then thinking is in Jeremiah. Um, now, I think it's really worth recalling when you read this book, the context of his situation, being specific about it. He was resident in Jerusalem in the last years of Israel, the, uh, the, the sort of fag end of the nation of Israel. When Zedekiah was king, he actually wasn't really a king. He was a puppet king put there by Nebuchadnezzar. And Zedekiah foolishly had decided to rebel against his Babylonian overlords. And in doing that, he had turned to Egypt for help. And what Zedekiah had done was 
he'd clustered a group of yes men around him, sycophantic prophets. Um, and, and these sycophantic prophets would have been quite persuasive. They could appeal to the patriotism of Israel and their religious identity that could, and, and they could claim God is on our side. God, yeah, God is on our side. Now, what Jeremiah was saying, so Jeremiah's antagonists in the book, and, and I think um, not many people probably grasp this, were not um, idolatrous prophets as, say, Elijah had. They, 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 they were not. They were Jewish prophets who were claiming uh, that God was, uh, was on Zedekiah's side. And, and Jeremiah was saying, God is not on your side. And so it would be very easy, and if you read the book of Jeremiah, it's clear they, their, their counter argument was to paint him as not patriotic because he was backing the Babylonians, apparently. Uh, he was saying that the Babylonian incursions were, in fact, judgments on Israel's long history of apostasy and bad leadership. So as an example in Jeremiah chapter 3, this is the perfect example of the if-then logic that he's now explaining to them. Uh, you have polluted the land Therefore, the showers have been withheld. So that's, that's a straight if-then if then logic. You have polluted the land, therefore the showers have been withheld, i.e. drought. Um, that's the first level. The second level comes in the same chapter, verse 22 of Jeremiah 3. Return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithfulness. So there's an if-then. If you return, I will heal. So that framework uh, is demonstrated there. Um, chapter 4, another great example of the if-then logic. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, if you remove your detestable things from my presence, and if you swear in truth, justice, and in righteousness. So therefore, the conditions are so stressed, we get a triplet, a threefold if, if, if. Then uh, nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. By the way, I won't go into that now, but that's extremely interesting because he actually doesn't say there uh, that the blessing will be merely Israel's return. The blessing will be that the nations, implication being global humanity, will bless themselves and, uh, in him, in God, and in him shall they glory. Jeremiah 7 uh, verse 3 is another one. Amend your uh, ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. So this is the if-then framework. It's all pervasive all throughout the early chapters of Jeremiah. It seems to actually ascend in firmness and in anger um, and reaches a climax in chapter 15 where you get a, 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 a sort of a fearful verse. Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn towards this people. So, So God is... Uh, relentless. Even if Moses and Samuel made intercession on your behalf, I would not forgive you. My heart would not turn toward these people. Now, it's within that context that this new covenant, chapter 31, emerges. And what I want to do now is turn to the new covenant and look at well, what's new about it. As I said, typically, typically, what's new is seen as the new heart. I'm going to give you a new heart, which is uh, the then part of the equation on the if-then. That the then will be, um, it's, it's amplified to include the gift of the Holy Spirit and therefore 
is seen as foreshadowing the post-resurrection kingdom of spirit-filled experience of God. But the conclusion of most people is that that's, all, that's the new bit and the if bit remains. We remain, the new covenant remains in an if-then paradigm. Now, the, one of the, the, the note on the Quest Study Bible in the NIV um, is a very good example of this thinking. Here's the note they append in the margins to the very verses we're talking about. I'm quoting it now. God's promises are fulfilled only for those faithful to the conditions of the promises. Just as the old covenant required obedience to the law, the new covenant requires surrender to Christ. Only then can God's laws be written on one's heart and mind. The promise is available for all who turn from sin and give themselves to Christ. I think that's an example of, of the kind of retrospective re-engineering of the Old Testament via the, the, um, package, the evangelical package of the New Testament, which um, just um, imposes on, on the text of the Old Testament the, all the assumptions we've got on our evangelical gospel. Um, now, it's very, very clear that they have said there is another if then, i.e. if you turn to Christ, then you will get the new heart. Um, I think most people think that, and I think it it's just squirming its way toward grace, but not quite getting there, because frankly, we now have another work. You just can't get away from this, that now the obedience I have as a new obedience is that I believe and the reason that I receive the Holy Spirit and the reason that I'm going to heaven or whatever I, I feel about that is because I believe and the reason the person next to me is not going to heaven and it is, is possibly facing hell, that's what some people think, is because they didn't believe. Well you can't get away from the fact you're still in the if-then logic and you have a merit your merit is you believed in Jesus, and their merit is that they didn't. Well, the question is, is that what Jeremiah is saying? And the answer is no, not at all. You, it, 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 you, it, this is doing violence to the text of Jeremiah. I'm arguing the newness of the covenant is not just in the gift of the new heart. It also is in this new covenant inverts the if-then framework. There are, in fact, no if conditions attached to this covenant in Jeremiah. There are, let me repeat that, there are no if conditions attached to this covenant in Jeremiah. So let me prove that to you. Um, the, the, the passage where we're looking at really begins in Jeremiah 29, uh, Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. So this is Jeremiah from Jerusalem, his letter to the exiles in Babylon. And this is what it says. And I, I just haven't picked this out and left bits out. This is what it says. I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. No ifs. Why? 
For I know the plans I have for you. Not because you've repented. I'll bring you back to this place because I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. What are the plans? Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Now that is extraordinary. There are no conditions. There instead is the pretext for the blessing is God, the firmness of God's promise. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. You will seek me and you will find me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and I will bring you back. I want you to notice this. It's an inversion. The consequence of them being re-included and brought back is that they will repent, is that they will seek God. It doesn't say, if you seek me, you will find me. It doesn't say, if you call upon me, I will fulfill my promise to you. It's the other way around. The then, the if is God's action, the then is human compliance, awareness, obedience, and repentance. That's the structure of Jeremiah 29. So rather than an if then, that is, the if is conditional on the human side, and the, and the blessing uh, consequence is on God's side. Rather than that, we get a when-then framework. When I fulfill my promise, then you will obey me. And instead of a condition, we have a premise. And the premise is God's promise and faithfulness. Now, I won't go through Jeremiah 30 and 31, but if you, obviously, the, the very famous Jeremiah 31 is toward the end of Jeremiah. 31, but you can read all of Jeremiah 30 and 31 and you will find this when-then framework is consistent. There are no conditions to this new covenant. It is, the, it is the incontrovertible commitment of God to his purposes that's the condition. In fact, that's what's so extraordinary about this. After really a compendium of chapters that are all in the if-then logic, and if that if-then logic pertains, nobody's got a chance. Israel would never get back. They didn't get back to the land because they were good. They got back to the land because of God's purposes. Um, now, we can go further because actually, if you read Jeremiah 31, he did attach a condition. He did attach a condition to this new covenant. And it was a very, very um, explicit and firm condition. Question is, what is the what is what is the condition? Let me let me read it to you. Um, oops, I'm in the wrong chapter. Sorry, I'm just looking. Okay, this is what he says. Uh, the next bit, immediately following the uh, famous declaration of the new covenant. Does he go on and say something like? However, you must repent. However, you must do justice in the land. However, you must tear down your idols. However, you, know, you must pray and come to me. Is that what he says? As the condition or premise? No, this is what he says. Thus 
I'm reading from verse 35, the immediate verse following these ones. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens can be measured, the heavens above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Isn't that magnificent? And who hasn't, why haven't people noticed that? The if then returns, and the if is creation. Creation. If you can budge creation, I'll give up on everything. I'll give up on you guys. So he has secured his promises in the created order. Wonderful. And what could be firmer than that? It can't be budged. Well, um, I guess you could, uh, you could worry um, about this radical grace that it will not create uh, good outcomes. I'll give you... I'll, uh, but I'll, uh, what, I, what I will do is say it, it actually is ironic that it does create good outcomes. Firstly, let me just mention a very strange verse in Ezekiel chapter 16. Which Anne and I are now reading Ezekiel. We're under Ezekiel. I'm still catching up with the Jeremiah talks. Very famous chapter, Ezekiel 16, um, where he likens his love for Israel to a man's love for a young woman. And at the end of the chapter here, it has this extraordinary passage, which is very similar to what Jeremiah has been saying. Thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Okay, you've done badly. I'll deal with you. Now it changes. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. So that everlasting covenant is an allusion to what Jeremiah has just amplified. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for all that you have done, declares the Lord. This is extraordinary. The inversion here is continued. When I return my covenant, what will you do? You'll repent. You'll be sorry. You'll realize, boy, we made a really bad mistake. You'll re Rather than when you remember your shame and when you repent, then I will give you the everlasting covenant. Rather, the covenant comes first and what follows is awareness of how badly we've done. Douglas Campbell is very strong on this, that in fact, even our awareness of sin is consequential upon the act of grace in our lives. Um, so I haven't heard Douglas quote these examples, but they're exactly what he's what he's saying. So that's that's uh, my argument is that this new paradigm of grace is so extreme; it's very hard for us to wrap our minds around. 
But a close reading of the text certainly helps and the consequences, I think, are very important. Um, uh, let me be practical and finish with an example because my, my final point is that as dangerous as it sounds, this regime of grace produces righteousness and a regime of contractual, conditional religion does not. Uh, I have um, really lived pursuing grace um, all of my Christian life and that's initially due and largely due to my wonderful mother um, and she taught me so much about the love of God and grace um, as the foundation for the gospel. So I brought that into how I brought up our children. I thought I've got to try to bring them up by grace not law. And when the kids were little, I've got four kids and Two, there were two boys in the middle, uh, Tim and Peter, and Tim was two years older than Peter. Now, Tim was a rascal, um, and Peter was a sweet, compliant little boy. And Tim was a schemer. He was always a schemer. He's a great liar, great liar, Tim. He was. He's not now, but he remains a schemer and a wonderful, wonderful uh, now colleague in my business, as does Peter. But um, I was working, we lived out in the country, and I was working on the roof of the house, unbeknown to the boys, and that gave me clear view of the entire precinct. And I told Tim, don't go into the shed where all the tools were, I thought it was dangerous. But from the roof, I saw him creeping across with his little brother, perhaps they were sort of six or seven and five, his little brother in tow. And I could see what they were doing, which was they were making a beeline for the band shed. And as they were going, I boomed out. What are you doing, Timothy? And I saw them shocked. They couldn't tell where the, it was like the voice of God from heaven. They didn't know where it was coming from. Oh, oh, oh Dad, we're not doing, we're not, we're not doing anything, Dad. We're, we're, we're just playing. Or he, he was, you know, one of his obvious lies. <laughs> I could tell like, what they were doing. Okay, and, I, and, I, and, I, and now I could have said, no, don't you dare, you're going in the shed and... and I thought, well, I'll take him at his word. I know he's lying to me. I said, all right, Tim, remember I've told you not to go into the shed? No, 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 we won't go in the shed. Okay, just remember that, Tim. Bang, off they went into the shed. Now, that story is interesting because I, I had a real decision to make as to how I was going to play that game with him. He told me years later, he knew, even then as a little boy, he knew that I knew. And when I looked at him afterwards and he came and said, Tim, did you go into the shed? No, 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 no. He knew that I knew and that I'd forgiven him, even though he hadn't asked me. And it made him feel really rotten. And that story made him more devoted to me than anything. He told that story to his friends. Tim's now 40, 45, and uh, he's a member of the Australian parachuting team, four men. They go down head first in formation flying. They've just come second in the world championships in, uh, in America to the USA team. They're a tremendous performance. And Tim has shared this story with his friends. Why has he shared it with his friends? Because when you are in such intense, 
performance-based sport as formation parachuting. You're going to the earth head first, 300 kilometers an hour, and the slightest twitch will throw you off course, and you've got to do all these intricate moves very quickly. It's real teamwork. And if something goes wrong the, from one person, they, they can blame the others. And so Tim has shared this story with them, how, no, no, we need to forgive each other, just like my dad forgave me. So 40 years later, he's telling this story. Uh, the leader of the team, ex-SAS soldier, the leader of the Australian team, was possibly their best parachutist. And he was a bit of a martinet and been really tough on them and tough on Tim when Tim made mistakes. And they'd really gone through, any of you who've been involved in heavy performance-based activities will know the pressure and the anxiety this brings. Um, and all that pressure is, tends to be counterproductive. You actually seize up and don't do so well. Uh, they, they'd had a coach in America, a man I don't know, but an American man, you know, one of the top ever parachutists was helping them. Uh, this guy's now a speaker. He worked with Anthony Robbins and others and talking about performance. But one of the points he'd made was exactly this point. You need to forgive others and you need to forgive yourselves. Otherwise, if you keep blaming yourself, you'll just keep, you'll underperform. You'll become anxious and introverted and won't perform. Anyway, midway through the competition, um, they'd, for the first time, I think, beaten the Americans. Uh, you, you get 10 jumps. Um, and the next jump coming up was the Australian team's best jump. Best jump. Off they went, they did the jump, and lo and behold, the team leader, who was their best jumper, who had never done this before, froze mid-flight and utterly screwed it up. When they got to the ground, all the guys immediately ran across to him and hugged him and said, don't worry about it, we forgive you. And he had to forgive himself. And the, and the story they were going back to was the story of how I um, handled Tim's bad behaviour by preemptive forgiveness based on my relationship with him. And... Uh, as a result, they, they were able to lift. I, I, I just think it's a great story of how very practically speaking, I'm, I'm leaving aside the covenantal religious side of this, I'm saying in all relationships, although this seems dangerous, although grace seems dangerous, although unconditional love seems dangerous, that's how God dealt with us. It's how he runs the universe. And ironically, it's, it's how we get righteous and not just righteous living but effective living so i, I just trust the this is a very important uh, matter for us to absorb and I, I think um have a look at these texts yourself read them through they're quite extraordinary god bless you